Welcome back to the show, poker players. Let's level up your game. I'm Mike Brady, and I've got Gary Blackwood on the line to discuss the most valuable discoveries that poker players have made since the advent of solvers. What's up, guys and girls? As Mike says, we are discussing solvers today. We're going to be talking about all the things that we have learned from the solver, some of the things we already knew, some things that sort of confirmed to us, but a lot of new concepts that the solver has delivered to the modern game of Nolan Holden. Yeah, I asked the poker community on Twitter and reached out to a number of mid- and high-stakes poker pros with the following question. What is the most consequential strategic concept or mechanic that poker players have learned because of solvers? We're about to run through the seven best answers. This episode's going to be a little different from past ones, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's dive in. So the first thing we're going to cover that the poker community has learned from solvers is that the betting lead slash initiative, that's fake. It does not matter. It is not really a thing. Back in the day, you know, you used to always check to the aggressor from the previous street because they have the betting initiative. There'd also be a discussion around keeping the betting initiative. That, ev that would even be a reason to make a play for some people. Oh, well, I want to keep the betting initiative. Uh, you know, I want to keep being aggressive, so I'm going to bet. Turns out that's not really a thing. Obviously, you often do check to the preflop raiser, you often do check to the player on the previous street, but it's not because they have the betting initiative, it's for a different reason. Gary, what is that reason? So the main reason we would be checking to the preflop aggressor or checking to the person that bet the previous street is because the equity advantage lies with that player. For example, the button opens and we defend the big blind and the flop comes down king eight deuce. We're not checking there because well, the button has the betting lead, we're checking there because our range is at a serious disadvantage and we can't justify doing anything other than, than checking. There are a lot of instances in poker where we are supposed to go against the betting initiative, i.e. we're supposed to donk bet. Normally, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, if somebody led out without the betting initiative, they'd immediately be tagged as a recreational player or a fish or a bad player because they're leading out. You know, why is this guy leading out? I have the betting initiative. I raise preflop. Why is he leading into me? But solvers have shown us that in a lot of instances, that is the correct thing to do. And we can come up with several different examples straight out of the bat. For example, under the gun opens, the big blind defends, and the flop comes down 6-4-3. The big blind is supposed to lead there because it's one of the very few flops where the, the under the gun player is not destroying the big blind's range. Flop comes down king 8 deuce, the big blind is not supposed to lead because his range can't support it. But if the flop comes down 6-4-3, 5-4 deuce, all these types of low connected boards, the big blind is supposed to lead out. And it's nothing to do with the betting initiative, it's to do with the big blind. Well, actually, my range can support this now. I have reasonable equity, so I'm going to lead out. And we can look at you know examples on a variety of streets. For example, the button opens, the big blind defends, the flop comes down, 8-6 deuce. The button is supposed to use a large c-bet size when betting. And with that, the button's range is a little more condensed, i.e. they're not betting their entire range. So they're not going to bet their 6x, for example, as much as, you know, on King 8 Deuce Rainbow, where they bet all their 8x because they're betting their entire range. On 8-6 Deuce, they're using a larger bet size. The range is a little smaller. They're not going to bet all their 6x, which means that when they do bet and the big blind calls and the turn is a 6, you'll see a lot of players leading out because all of a sudden the big blind has more of a 6x advantage, i.e. a little bit more of an equity slash nutted advantage and therefore their range can support that. So that's one preflop example and one flop example. There are a bunch of different examples on every street where the person that does not have the betting initiative is supposed to just lead out. Yeah, and if you want to learn a little bit more about that turn leading concept, like leading out on middle pairs and bottom pairs on the turn, 
Go ahead and just Google Upswing Poker Cheat Code. I wrote a pretty in-depth article about that concept. It's something that Doug's team had kind of been doing for a long time before Solvers. One of the several examples of, of Doug's kind of heads-up team being ahead of the game there. But it's a really interesting concept, and if it's something you can add to your game comfortably, you're going to pick up some nice extra EV. All right, the next thing that we've learned from Solvers that we're going to go over is one that was suggested by Doug Polk. Small bets weren't small enough, and big bets weren't big enough. Gary, I assume you know exactly what he's talking about, so can you go ahead and ramble on a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the first small bet we're going to talk about is the, the biggest of all the small bets, 33%. It was relatively commonly used before solvers, but nowhere near as much as it is in this day and age. So, you know, we we sort of got confirmation that we should be doing a lot of small betting. In terms of small bets not being small enough, there are a lot of instances where we bet 25% pot, for example, in four bet pots. I read a brilliant article on Upswing Poker the other day. I'm not just saying that, it was genuinely fantastic about when to use a 10% bet size. So, you know, our small bets go all the way down to 10%. You know, for example, Four bet pots, you know, the flop comes down ace ace deuce or ace queen three. We're supposed to use those really small bets that nobody knew about. And again, similarly to what I said about, you know, the, the betting lead, somebody bet 10% six years ago, I just immediately tagged them as a bad player. Whereas in this day and age, lots and lots of players are using really small bets because they're so important. And you're supposed to use 10% and 25% in a variety of instances. And on the flip side, you see a lot of big bets in this day and age, a lot of 150%, 200% bet sizes mainly on the turn and a lot of the time on the river as well. You know, we kind of got confirmation from the solver that going all in for 2x pot wasn't as crazy as, you know, when we were watching Isildur versus Tom Dwan playing heads up, these guys were going all in for 2x pot. And the poker world was like, wow, this is crazy. But, you know, the solvers came out came out, and we sort of realized that actually that's pretty standard. It's pretty common. You're supposed to go all in for 2x pot. You're supposed to bet 1.5x pot on the turn a lot of the time. That wasn't happening anywhere near enough before the solvers came out, but now that the solvers come out, a lot of really competent regs have massive sizes as part of their arsenal, and it's backed up by the fact that the solver uses them as well. All true, and the next thing we're going to talk about is actually kind of the reason we bet small and big, but really quickly, I also want to point out that sometimes you'll even see some savage players jamming for like 10x pot in some situations, so yeah, the big bets were not big enough. Like, there are some situations where you really get to hammer just a massive, massive bet size. Michael Adamo, by the way, keep an eye out for him. If you're seeing, <laughs> if you're seeing him play in a live poker tournament and, you're, and they're deep, expect to see some potential 5x, 10x pot shoves. The guy's a savage. So as I said, the next thing we're going to talk about that the poker community has learned from solvers is sort of the reason behind these small and big bets, and that is that equity advantage and nut advantage are at the heart of the optimal betting frequency and sizing. So just a quick definition for everyone to make sure we're on the same page. Equity advantage, aka range advantage, that's when your range has more equity than your opponent's. For example, if me and Gary are in a hand together, and my range has 55% equity versus his range, which has 45% equity, I have a range advantage. There's also nut advantage, which is essentially who has more really strong hands. So that's going to be the player who has more two pairs, the player who has more sets. Depending on the board, it could be the player who has more straights or more flushes, stuff like that. On certain boards, over pairs are even kind of treated as the nuts. So sometimes that can be part of the nut advantage is who has more over pairs, but that's only on certain boards. So Gary, can you expand a little bit on what I'm talking about and help our listeners better understand these concepts? Yeah, absolutely. And this third topic we're talking about is kind of a nice summary for the first two topics that we've spoken about. The first one, mainly in terms of, you know, the betting lead slash initiative, it doesn't matter. 
that's really nicely defined by the fact that your equity advantage and your nut advantage or your equity disadvantage and nut disadvantage, they dictate everything that we do. So the reason, as mentioned, you know, the betting lead or the initiative doesn't matter and, you know, you can donk out in certain scenarios, that's because you have either an equity advantage or the nut advantage. When solvers came out and, you know, the players that were using solvers early on, that sort of was the main concept. And I really like the way this is worded because, as mentioned, you know, it really is at the heart of everything that we do. If we have an equity advantage, we tend to do X, Y, Z. We tend to bet a certain size. If we have the nut advantage, we tend to be able to lead out, for example. We tend to be able to overbet. We tend to be able to do all these different things. And you'll also find that the, the equity advantage lies with the preflop aggressor for the most part. For example, button opens and the big blind defends. There are virtually no boards where the big blind has an equity advantage. But there are a lot of scenarios where the, the equity advantage goes out the window because of the nut advantage. For example, I use this example quite a lot. Under the gun opens, big blind defends, you get seven, five, three. The nut advantage very much lies with the big blind. However, the equity advantage lies with the under the gun player and the big blind gets to lead out because he has that nut advantage. So it's not a case of, well, I don't have an equity advantage. I have to check all the time. If you have a significant nut advantage, you get to play a certain way. And on the flip side, if you have a significant nut disadvantage, for example, the button opens, you three bet the small blinds, the button calls, Flop comes down six five four, for example, the nut advantage very much lies with the button. And as a result, the small blind has got to check there like 75% of the time. And despite having the equity advantage and all these strong hands like overpairs, etc., the nut advantage is massively dictating both of those scenarios. Right. So it really sounds like having a nut disadvantage forces you to play very defensively, very passively, and sort of make sure your entire range can, you know, stand facing aggression. All right, let's move on to the fourth thing that we'll be covering in this episode that poker players have learned from solvers, and that is playing properly out of position, especially as the preflop raiser. It was actually upswing coach Uri Peleg who suggested this one, and he's someone I learned a lot about this from in his Elite Cash Game Exploits course. The out of position strategy for the preflop raiser involves a lot of trapping, a lot of check raising. It's a lot less c-betting as well, because, you know, say, seven, eight years ago, if you opened and the button called and you're out of position against that player, most even good players were going to be c-betting in that situation quite frequently. What we've kind of learned is you have to play fairly defensively and passively at first. We actually talked about this in our last episode about playing flush draws quite a bit. And then once you do check, you, you play defensively, if your opponent bets, you kind of end up going crazy. You, you included some traps in your checking range. You're going to do a lot of check raising. Naturally, if you're check-raising a lot for value, you're also going to be check-raising a bunch as a bluff. So you kind of get to play pretty savagely out of position, but interestingly, that savagery starts with a check. Yeah, so if I had to choose one topic for us to discuss today, this would absolutely be it. The difference between how we play now out of position compared to seven or eight years ago is astronomical. The reasoning is sort of in the question, you know, why do we play so passively out of position? Because we're out of position, you know, when we're out of position, our opponent is in position and they get to float us really wide, which means that we can't just bet relentlessly because if our betting range is really wide and our opponent floats us really well, we're screwed on the turn. Our range is way too wide. We have so much air in our range. We have to check so much and our opponent just gets to float with nine high and barrel is off. It becomes a really big problem. Um, so like I said, this is an absolutely huge difference in terms of how Nolan Oldham is played compared to how it used to be played. For example, if you open the cutoff and the button calls, every flop that's 10 high and below, 
that's not paired, you're supposed to check your entire range on. Now, nobody was doing that eight years ago. I'll give you another fantastic example. You open the small blind, the big blind calls, the flop comes down king six four. You're supposed to check there like 65% of the time. Nobody was doing that seven, eight years ago. They'd probably be betting close to their entire range. And there are a bunch of different reasons for, you know, why we have to play that way. One of them is, of course, we're out of position. One of them is what we've spoken about already in terms of, you know, neutral equity and nut advantage and so on and so forth. But one thing I want to speak about, as Mike says, and this is really important, your range is forced to check so much. Cutoff versus button, MP versus button, under the gun versus button, small blind versus big blind. You must, 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 must follow that up with a solid check raising strategy. If your range is forced to check super wide because you're out of position, your range is really wide, the button's flying range is 5%, XYZ, you absolutely must check and then check raise very aggressively. And it's really easy to work out what your value is. You've got your over pairs, your sets, top pair, top kicker, all those sort of hands. But you must be finding these check raises with, you know, say it comes down 8-5 deuce, you must be finding these, you know, king 10 suited with a backdoor flush draw, queen jack suited with a backdoor flush draw, 7-6 suited, ace-4 suited. You've got your equity, but you're going to have a lot of, you know, two over cards, backdoor straight draw, backdoor flush draw. It's extremely important that if you are going to start checking really wide out of position as you should, you follow that up with, as Uri has said, and as Mike has said, a very solid, very aggressive check raising strategy. Because otherwise, you know, you're out of position, you're not check raising aggressively enough, your opponent is going to be able to steamroll you if you're just check calling and then check folding the turn or, you know, check folding on the flop. One last thing I want to say, and this is really important, is that your range is supposed to check a lot on the flop, which means that the button range is supposed to bet really wide. And with that, they've got a lot of air. So you want to be really aggressive with your air to make them fold out their better air, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And and it's not just that they're going to steamroll you in that they're going to bluff you a lot, they're going to value bet you a lot. They're also just going to realize too much equity, right? If you're never check raising them, that means that they're always seeing the turn. And then, you know, they can check back the turn. Then they always get to see the river. So they always get to see five cards. That's a huge advantage for them. So not only are they going to bluff you very efficiently, not only are they going to value bet you very efficiently, they're also going to just see all the cards and get to check down, take showdown value, and kind of just crush you, even by accident sometimes. That was one thing that people used to do. Um, the imposition player, they used to stab the flop so that they would be able to check back the turn and see the river. That yep. was like, a, 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 you still see that in live poker a lot of the time. And, you know, solvers have come in and sort of taken that away from people because now when the imposition player says, well, I'm going to bet the flop so I get to check back the turn and I get to see the river, all of a sudden the out of position player is check raising them relentlessly and they don't get to, to do that anymore. So it's a pretty cool thing that people used to do that they don't get to do anymore, i.e. I want to bet the flop in position so I get to see the river. All of a sudden, out of position is just check raising their ass off and they don't get to see that river anymore. Yeah, and it makes sense that it would have worked really well to have that aggressive stabbing strategy because your opponent out of position was probably c-betting too much seven or eight years ago. They probably were just c-betting every time they had a set, every time they had an overpair, etc. So when they checked, they probably just had the two high card miss, right? And then you can stab, maybe get them to fold it. If they don't fold it, they call. You know, you do get to see that free river. So it was kind of a good adjustment that people were making back then by stabbing frequently on the flop. Now, it's not so good because people know to check with some good hands out of position, check with some plans to check raise bluff out of position. So that stabbing strategy is no longer so good. That said, if you're playing live, low stakes online, you might be facing people who are still c-betting too frequently out of position, and that stabbing strategy is still going to be quite good. All right, so the fifth thing that we're going to talk about that the poker community has learned from solvers 
is generally unintuitive removal effects. So there's kind of, kind of a few examples of this, really countless examples, but we're going to cover a few. One really obvious one. Back in the day, if you had a flush draw on the river and you missed, you were probably going to bluff it because you missed your draw. These days, we now know the solver does not like to bluff those hands because you block the missed flush draws in your opponent's range, which makes them a little bit more likely, or in some cases a lot more likely, to call your river bet. On the flip side, as the player who's facing a bet on the river, you actually want to have blockers to the missed flush draw because your opponent is not supposed to be bluffing with them. So it's kind of like this cat and mouse game where now you don't want to be bluffing when you have the missed flush draw and you do want to be calling when you block the missed flush draw. There are some other unintuitive removal effects we'll cover too. I'll, I'll kind of let Gary talk it over and share his general thoughts on, you know, unintuitive removal effects that we've learned from solvers. There's just one thing I want to add. You're absolutely right in terms of, I still work with a lot of students and a lot of low stakes players who, who use solvers who say, say like jack five deuce, you know, whatever. And they've got like ace jack with the ace of spades and the, the, the spade flush draw missed. And they say to themselves, yeah, you know, calling was bad here because I had ace jack, but the ace of spades, it sort of blocks their bluffs. And you sort of say to them, well, actually, if you think about it, they're not supposed to bluff with their missed flush draws. So having the ace of spades is actually really good here. So this is a, a conception that solvers have absolutely brought to the forefront of the game, but not a lot of people apply it. It's largely the mid to high stakes players that apply it. Obviously, some low stakes players do grasp that concept. There's one more thing I want to talk about. It's a somewhat complex, um, but it's really important. You know, we hear the term blockers a lot. Unblockers are just as important and largely put into practice by mid-stakes and high-stakes players as well. Um, I'll give you guys a perfect example. Say, for example, you three-bet small blind versus button. The flop comes down jack, six, deuce, club, diamond, spade. You're going to you bet your entire range on the flop. That's obviously completely fine. You'll find that you barrel more on the turn with hearts. And the reason for that is your opponent is supposed to float the flop with clubs, diamonds, and spades. Therefore, when you have hearts, you sort of unblock those floats, which are just, you know, king high that have to automatically fold. And the solver is going to want to barrel those hearts more because it unblocks the hands it's now trying to make fold on the turn, which is a really important part of what we're talking about here in terms of, you know, removal, blockers, unblockers, etc. And that's a concept that the solver really drills home for a lot of players that use it. Yeah, so, you know, for example, on that jack 6-2 club diamond spade, if you have king queen of spades yourself, say the turn is like a total brick, like a three or something, you block a lot of their potential floats that are now going to automatically fold, like the king queen of spades that you have, the queen ten of spades, all that kind of a thing. If they have a hand like that, they're easily folding the turn to any bet size. They had nothing on the flop, they were kind of hoping for a little something to happen on the turn, it didn't, and now they're just going to get out of the way. So you don't want to block those hands, right? You want them to have those auto folds, especially when you're bluffing. All right, let's move on to our second to last thing that we've learned from solvers, and that is the power of block betting. Block betting is essentially when you bet in order to kind of prevent your opponent from betting a bigger size. That's kind of the the layman way to put it. It's not exactly why you do it in solver land, but that's that's kind of the, the simple way to think about it. Gary actually made an in-depth module covering how to block bet, how it works, why we do it for the Upswing Poker Lab. You can go join, check that out if you're interested in it. So I'm not going to talk about block betting at all because this guy studied it extensively for that module. Gary, take it away on block betting. So the first thing I want to say is that you know when you're blocking the river, you're going to want to have a big size as well. So I don't split my range too much when you split your range you have two different sizes in the same spot i generally suggest having one size for a variety of spots however when you're out of position on the river 
a lot of scenarios you want to have a small size and a big size there are a lot of advantages to having that small size and using the solver has really showed us you know two things one just how important it is to have that block size and two just how wide we get to block bet in a variety of situations as Mike said, you know, when people started blocking, it was to stop their opponent from betting a bigger size because we would block and then our opponent would just, you know, call and it would save us check calling versus a bigger bet size. That's not why we block anymore. There are a bunch of different advantages to blocking. The main reason is you get to bet unbelievably wide. Uh, there are a lot of situations where, say, for example, you defend the big blind and the flop and turn go check, check. You get to bet fourth pair and you get to bet fifth pair. And there's some scenarios where you get to bet ace high for value. And the solver has sort of shown us just how wide we get to bet in certain situations that, you know, flop and turn going check, check is one of them. So as mentioned, you know, you've got your small size, you've got your second pairs, your third pairs. You're going to have some strong hands in there as well. You've got plenty of bluffs in that range as well. And as mentioned, you need the bigger size. You know, this example we keep using, button versus big blind, a lot of your top pairs go into that big size. Whereas MP versus big blind, a lot of your top pairs go into your block size. So it's really important that you've got your small size with your, your second pairs, your third pairs. You're going to have some strong hands in there as well. Lots of bluffs in that small size. And then you've got your big size for your stronger top pairs, your two pairs, your sets, etc. And there's a lot of uh, bluffs that go into that size as well. Yeah, you're essentially building two different ranges around the hands that most want to be in that range, right? So for your block size, the hands that really want to be blocking are like middle pairs that like are trying to eke out a little bit of value and get a cheaper showdown potentially ace highs that are trying to eke out a little bit of value bottom pairs that are trying to eke out a little bit of value then of course you have to balance that with bluffs as you always have to and it's so amazing by the way when you get a bluff through in that spot because it's so efficient right you risk like 12 percent of the pot to win the whole pot pretty sweet when it does get through and then of course you have to protect that range by including some strong hands because otherwise your opponent could just raise you every time and you wouldn't be able to do anything about it then you have your big size, kind of more typical way to build a range. You have your strong value hands that want to bet, want to get value, and then you add bluffs to balance those value hands. All right, let's jump in to the last thing that poker players have learned from solvers. And this one's kind of general, but I think it's a great answer. And it's how gangster the equilibrium strategy really is in poker. It is mind-blowing to look at how the solver plays certain spots, how aggressive it actually is. I mean. Even the most aggressive players back in the day who were just kind of spewing left and right because they knew playing aggressive was good, and it worked well for them, to be fair, some of them at least, they don't hold a candlestick to how aggressive the solver plays. The solver finds so many situations to check-raise, what, Gary, 25-30% of the time in some spots. It does a bunch of, like, massive overbetting. The solver is a savage and we've learned a lot from it, and that's why you see guys, I bring them up again, Michael Adamo, Doug Polk is another one, honestly, guys who really take the aggression to the next level, and that's because they have the confidence to do that, because they know it's right, because they see that's what the equilibrium strategy really is. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to add to that. I think Mike has absolutely nailed it, but uh, you know, the first thing that I want to say is that Mike said seven, eight years ago, people weren't playing anywhere near as aggressively. Even solid mid-stakes regs, who play online they still don't play anywhere near as aggressively as the solver plays they don't call anywhere near as much as the solver does don't get me wrong they're still very good poker players but the solver strategy is so gangster it's so aggressive it folds so little that these guys are still not reaching the the heights that the solver is able to find uh, there are a bunch of different examples that we can give for example you know 
Button opens, big blind defense, flop comes down 7-7-3. The big blind is supposed to check raise are like 25 to 30% of the time. The best humans will find like 15, 16, 17, 18% of the time at the very most. The solver never folds. It calls down super light. No human calls anywhere near as light as the, as the solver is able to do so. It's splitting its range between small sizes and big sizes very evenly. It's very tough to play against a multi-size strategy, but a very well-balanced multi-size strategy, it's impossible to play against. As Mike says, the solver strategy is absolutely gangster, and a lot of humans are not getting close to it. I don't know if we ever will, to be honest. I try my best, but uh, the solver finds new ways to, to amaze me every day. Yeah, that's good. You're, you're learning every day. <laughs> you're, you're a pioneer battling in the streets in the solver cave. That's just how it is. All right, I want to end this episode with a quick warning. Solvers are incredibly valuable and powerful tools, but the interfaces can be difficult to navigate. What's more, we often see poker players make mistakes when using solvers, and those mistakes actually make their strategy worse and cost them money in the long run. That's why we've created the new PO Solver Crash Course in the Upswing Poker Lab. The entire thing takes under two and a half hours to complete, and by the end, you'll know how to use PO Solver like a pro. Sign up for the Upswing Lab to get instant access to the Crash Course, along with 90-plus other poker strategy lessons. Keep in mind that when you join the lab, it's risk-free because your investment is backed by a 30-day, 100% money-back guarantee. We know if you go through just a small part of the lab, especially Gary's modules, you'll see improvements in your game. Thanks for listening to Level Up. We'll see you next week for what is the final episode of Season 1.